Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning. It's especially good to see some of the people who were on the Houston mission trip here this morning. I am deeply impressed that you made it to the early worship service this morning. When I saw them yesterday when they were back at uh, the building, they didn't look like they were in any shape to be here at 8.30 this morning. But they made it. We look forward to hearing about your trip. We know that you did great things there. But I do want to let you know that I think it's awfully rude that you ditched my wife in Dallas. So that is not good. Um, Also, Zach Henson, um, we just want to say hello to you. Um, and goodbye to you, because this is Zach's last Sunday with us before he heads off to basic training. Zach, know that we'll be praying for you, and you'll be in our thoughts and our prayers the entire time that you're there. And we know that you'll be a shining example for Jesus while you're at basic training. So, uh, Godspeed to you, Zach. Also, I want to mention that next week is our area-wide worship service, so uh, please plan on being here for that. It'll be great to have uh, Christians gathered from all over the metro area here together as we sing together, as we hear some good talks together, as we enjoy a meal together. So please plan on being here for that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us. Father, I thank you for bringing the group from Houston back safely to be with us. And thank you for all the good work that they did there. Father, thank you for the way that they impacted young, young lives there in Houston. And also, Father, I thank you for the way that they were impacted. And Father... We know that they will uh, bring back an energy and an enthusiasm and and a new um, love for you. And just pray, Father, that that will infect all of us and that we will become more and more like you as a result of having them in our midst. And, Father, we pray for Zach as he enters into this next phase of his life. Father, watch over him. uh, Keep him safe. Father, help him to be a tremendous influence for you among all those that he encounters He's in basic training and then beyond that. And Father, as we study your word this morning, just pray, Father, that you'll you'll help us to be open and receptive to your word, that our, our hearts will be touched and our lives will be changed, and that as a result of what is done here this morning, Father, we'll be drawn closer to you, we'll be drawn closer to each other, and also, Father, we will be emboldened to go out and share your name with the world that's around us so they too can come to know you and come to know the forgiving presence of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray this in his name, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So we're now in the fifth week of our summer summer sermon series called Face to Face with Jesus. We've been exploring various encounters that people have had with Jesus, people who came face to face with Jesus. And we're looking at how their lives were impacted and how their lives were changed because of those interactions that they had with Jesus But we don't want to just look at those interactions from what it did to them, but we also want to look at what it means for us, how those interactions apply to us, how we can take the lessons learned there and put them at work in our lives. This series continues our focus on our 2014 Netherwood theme, that all may know we are disciples of Jesus Christ, because we as a church are committed to being disciples of Christ, followers of Christ at all times and in all places, and in every circumstance. In the first week of this series, we listened as Jesus talked to his apostles, as he talked to the twelve, and he asked them a question. He said, who do people say that I am? And their reply was, some people say you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Others say that you are a prophet. And then Jesus looked at them face to face, and he said, but who do you say that I am? 
And Peter, not surprisingly, is the one who jumped in and he said, you are the Christ. And from that encounter, we learned that who we say Jesus is, who we believe Jesus to be, goes a long ways to defining who we are. And it goes a long way to determining what our lives are going to be like. In our second week, we looked on as Jesus encountered John the Baptist, the troublemaker. We saw that when John was baptized at the Jordan River, when the heavens opened up and the Spirit came down on him, and when God spoke, that that was a a sign that John's message of repentance, John's message of forgiveness, John's message of baptism was embraced and was endorsed by God, by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And then in the third week, we looked on as Jesus interacted with a paralyzed man on a mat. And also we talked about the men who were on the roof who had lowered that man into Jesus' presence. And we also looked on as he interacted with some scribes who were in the crowd as he interacted with a paralyzed man. And from that interaction, we learned that we're all paralyzed before God. We're paralyzed before, before God without the healing presence of Jesus Christ. And we also saw that we as a church should be filling the role of those men on the roof and bringing people into the healing and forgiving presence of Jesus, the Messiah. And then last week, we watched as a synagogue ruler, Jairus, came to Jesus in desperation because his 12-year-old daughter was terminally ill. And we looked on as their journey to that daughter's bedside was interrupted by a woman who had been suffering for 12 years. And as that unclean woman touched Jesus and was healed, and as Jesus touched that unclean girl and raised her from the dead, we saw that Jesus' ministry is all about washing. It's all about cleansing. It's all about restoration. And then this week, we're going to turn our attention to a dinner party at a man named Simon's house. And it's not just that party, but it's also going to be the scene that was created there by a woman who was a guest at the party, but not an invited guest. A guest at the party, but not necessarily a welcome guest. Because she was a notorious woman from that town. And this is a story that really kind of draws us in. Draws us in as readers and listeners. And it, it draws us in into a very uncomfortable, a very tense situation. Because what happens there is something that is very unpredictable. The events of the story unfold in unpredictable ways. And it's also a story that makes us uncomfortable and makes us tense because a central character in the story behaves completely inappropriately. Completely inappropriately. So let's listen again as the story unfolds. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees, and we'll learn in a minute his name was Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, this whole scene probably seems a little strange to all of us 
because it's so far removed from our circumstances. It's so far removed from our customs and experiences today. So we need to know that people in the first century in Palestine didn't have the same notion of personal space that we have. They didn't have the same notion of privacy that we have today. You see, this meal most likely occurred in Simon's courtyard, an open courtyard. And it's a place that would have been, to our way of thinking, a remarkably public place to be having a dinner party. We also need to understand that it was normal for people off the street to be present at these kind of dinner parties. They'd be on the periphery. They'd be up against the walls. They wouldn't have been invited, but they would have been welcome to be there as long as they stayed in their place. So during the meal, they would be overhearing the conversations that went on. And they'd also be looking forward to the possibility that when the meal was over, perhaps they would get some of the leftovers to eat. So that's what's going on at this party. So that the issue in this story isn't the woman's presence at the party. That's something that's relatively normal. The problem is the way that she behaves. The problem is, is her uncontrolled, her impulsive behavior at the party. That's what creates the problem. That's what creates the tension. The problem is she's stepped out of the shadows. She's left her place. And she's actually interacted with one of the invited guests. In fact, the honored guest. And she hasn't just interacted with Jesus. She's created a scene. She's created a spectacle. And she's done that with her emotional and out-of-control actions. And as we would expect, Simon is embarrassed by this. Because he's the host, and the woman's actions reflect on him. This scene that she's created reflects on him. And he isn't just embarrassed by the woman's actions. He's also incredulous at Jesus' inaction. Simon can't believe that Jesus doesn't do something. His guest is rumored to be a prophet from God, maybe even Elijah himself, and he does nothing as a known sinner touches him in an incredibly familiar and incredibly intimate way. She floods his feet with tears. She dries those tears with her own hair. She covers his feet in kisses. And Jesus does nothing. It's no wonder Simon is in a state of disbelief. He's thinking he's supposed to be a prophet He's supposed to be a prophet, and he's allowing a sinner to touch him, and especially touch him in this way. So let's see what happens at this party next. Verse 40. Jesus answered him, which is interesting because Simon didn't really ask a question. He's just thinking these things. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, which would be about a year and a half's worth of wages, and the other 50, a couple of months' wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So what does Jesus do here? Well, he answers Simon's skepticism about his identity as a prophet. And he deals with the tension that's been created by the woman's actions and by Jesus' own inaction. And he does that in a prophetic way. He does it as we would expect a prophet to do. He, He tells a story. 
He tells what's known as a gotcha parable. A gotcha parable. A gotcha parable is a story that's told to draw listeners into the story. And in that story, they're invited to pass judgment on characters in the story. But why it's a gotcha parable is that while they're passing judgment on the characters in the story, they're actually passing judgment on their own actions and behaviors. A gotcha parable. The most famous gotcha parable probably in the Bible has to do with David. It's a parable that was told in the wake of one of the most notorious and one of the most unbelievable events recorded in the Bible. It's a parable that was told after David's encounter with Bathsheba. King David seduced and impregnated Bathsheba. She was the wife of Uriah, one of his own soldiers. He seduced and impregnated her. And then he tried to arrange events so that it would look like Uriah was actually the father of the baby. And then when that didn't work out, he had Uriah killed on the field of battle. And then he took Bathsheba as his own wife. And that's when the prophet Nathan arrived on the scene. And he behaved prophetically. Nathan told a story. Nathan told a gotcha parable. We can read this in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So Nathan is speaking to David and he tells his story. He says, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Then David burned with anger against that man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. Gotcha, David. Nathan pulled David into the story, and when David proclaimed judgment on the rich man, he actually proclaimed judgment on himself. Gotcha, David. And that's what Jesus does at this dinner party. He pulls both Simon and the woman into the story, but it's Simon that he puts on the spot when he asks him a question. When he says, which of them, the one with a large debt forgiven or the one with a small debt forgiven, which of them will love the forgiving money lender more. Jesus is about to teach Simon and us an important lesson. And that's that when there's no possibility of repayment, the size of the debt is really irrelevant. The size of the debt really doesn't matter. What is relevant in this story is that both men are unable to pay the debt. Both men are helpless. Both men are at the mercy of the money lender. And both men are completely dependent on his mercy for the forgiveness of their debts. So let's see how Simon responds to Jesus' question about this parable. Which debtor will love more? Verse, verse 43. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. 
Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured oil on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Gotcha, Simon. You're the man who loves little. See, Simon was able to judge the parable correctly, but he had the events in his own courtyard judged completely wrong. And he judged the events in his courtyard incorrectly because he didn't see the people who were involved as who they really were. And so that's why Jesus asked him this question. He asked him, do you see this woman? Notice Jesus didn't say, do you see this sinner? And Jesus didn't say, do you see this sinful woman? He said, do you see this woman? And that is important. Because Simon didn't see a woman. Simon saw a stereotype. He saw a label. He saw a reputation. He saw someone who, unlike him, was deemed unworthy of the attention of holy and righteous people. Especially someone who is considered to be a prophet. He saw someone who belonged in a different category than the category in which he felt like he belonged. He saw a stereotype. But Jesus saw things differently. Jesus saw both of them. He saw Simon and the woman for who they really were. They're both debtors. They're two debtors who, just like in his parable, both of them are unable to pay their debts. And Jesus saw that they did, in fact, belong in two different categories. But they weren't the categories that Simon had in mind. Jesus divided them up into two categories. The categories were repentant debtor and unrepentant debtor. The woman was a repentant debtor, but Simon was an unrepentant debtor. Two debtors, one that knew she was a debtor and she had no ability to repay. And then the other, Simon, who didn't recognize either his debt nor his inability to pay. And so from this encounter, we see two starkly different views of people and two starkly different views of the situations that people are in. There's Simon's vision. We might call it a pharisaical vision. And that vision is that people identified as sinners are a dangerous source of contamination, and they're to be kept at a distance. And they have to be kept at a distance lest they somehow corrupt and contaminate the holy and righteous people. That's Simon's vision. But we see that Jesus had a very different vision. It's a vision that we, as his disciples, must embrace. It's a vision that we must share with Jesus. See, Jesus' vision is that people identified as sinners are actually children of God. But they are children of God in need of reclamation, and they're in need of regeneration. And that only comes about through God's gracious forgiveness. Jesus doesn't see people as stereotypes. He knows that they're not labels. He knows that people aren't just their reputations. They're men and they're women. They're boys and they're girls. 
They're all children of God who, just like each and every one of us that's gathered here this morning, are in desperate need of God's gracious forgiveness. So they too can be reclaimed. So they too can be regenerated. And they too can be made alive in Christ Jesus. I think Paul spoke to all of us when he wrote these words to the church in Ephesus. He wrote, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. We're all debtors, and we all have no ability to repay our debts, and we're all completely reliant on God's forgiveness to make us alive with Christ. And make no doubt, because Jesus left no doubt, that the notoriously sinful woman's sins were forgiven. Back to Luke chapter 7, verse 48. Jesus turned to her and he said, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, you may have heard the phrase cheap grace before. It's something that's been bandied about in churches for some time. And it refers to the concern that churches sometimes present God's forgiveness, sometimes present God's grace as being available without any cost, as being available without any requirements, without any effort at all. A couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the man on the mat, the paralyzed man, we saw that there's nothing cheap about God's grace. It came at a great cost. It came at a great price. It cost Jesus suffering, and it cost Jesus his life on the cross. There's nothing cheap about grace. And in this story, we see that grace also comes at a cost for the one who is receiving grace. You see, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that grace, that forgiveness, follows repentance. First comes repentance, and then comes forgiveness, and then comes grace. Grace is free, but it's free to those who acknowledge and confess their sins. It's free to those like the woman who in sorrow turn away from their sin sin and in joy turn to Jesus who forgives our sins. And that's what makes the second question a key question in this whole story. And it's a question that's asked by the dinner guests. They ask among each other, who is this who even forgives sins? And isn't it interesting that it's the woman who everybody knows and everybody identifies as a sinner, it's a woman who knows the answer to that question. Who is this who even forgives sins? It isn't Simon, the deeply religious one, who knows the answer. It isn't any of the prominent guests who know the answer. It's the woman from the shadows. It's the woman who steps out of her place. It's the one who is forgiven, who understands who Jesus is. She understands that Jesus is the Messiah, 
sent from God with the power and the authority to forgive sins. And she is the one who knows that she acted in a way that was completely inappropriate for a dinner party, but is completely appropriate for one who is in desperate need for the forgiving presence of Jesus Christ. I hope, I pray that I'll be like that woman. I pray that we as a church will be like that woman. That we won't be afraid to be viewed as impulsive and uncontrolled in our love of Jesus. Because we, just like the woman, recognize the magnitude of the debt that we owe. Because we recognize that our debts are unpayable. Because we comprehend, we understand that Jesus Christ is the forgiver of our debts. May we also be willing to be viewed as impulsive and uncontrolled in our love of Jesus. May we all love much. Because like the woman, we have been forgiven much. So as we end... And we spend our last few minutes this morning applying this face-to-face encounter of Jesus with the sinful woman and Jesus with Simon. Let's apply some things to our own lives. And first, I want us to all do this. I want us to all confirm and affirm and acknowledge that we all, every one of us here, we all stand before God with insurmountable debt. Our debts are insurmountable. Whether we have a seat at the table with the so-called good people, or whether our place is standing in the shadows with the so-called bad people, we're all sinners, and we're all incapable of paying our own debts. And secondly, let's all acknowledge and affirm that the only way into God's kingdom is through canceled debts, by having our debts canceled. We can't buy our way into God's kingdom. We can't earn our way into God's kingdom. We can't somehow sneak into God's kingdom through the back door. Our entrance into God's kingdom is completely dependent on having our debts canceled by having our sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, put it this way. He said, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The debts that we can't overcome have been overcome by Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we need to stop and recognize that for many of us, and certainly including me, for many of us we can see in this story ourselves in Simon the Pharisee. We can see more than a little bit of the vision that Simon had of the kingdom And people in this story. That vision might go something like this. We might be thinking Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God and then properly invited the wrong people into it. The wrong people into it. But if the gospels teach us anything, they teach us that Jesus sought out, that Jesus invited the very people into the kingdom that the religious people wanted to exclude. They wanted to keep out. He invited in the broken He invited in the diseased. He invited in the notoriously sinful, the demon-possessed, the aliens. He invited in foreign soldiers. The kingdom that Jesus ushered in is for all people at all times and in all places 
and in every circumstance. So how do we as a people, how do we as a church keep from adopting Simon's vision of the kingdom and keep from adopting his attitude towards sinners? Well, first of all, let me suggest this reminder. If we all avoid associating with sinners, none of us will have any friends. You won't be able to associate with me because I'm a sinner. I won't be able to associate with any of you because I happen to know that you're all sinners. We'll all be alone. We'll have no friends. We'll have no associates if we exclude all sinners from being in contact with us. But as forgiven sinners who are made alive in Christ, we can't have fear of the contaminating influence of sinners. That has to be overwhelmed by our confidence in the power of Jesus and the power of his spirit to transform and renew even the most notorious sinner. And why do we have that confidence? Why are we able to have that confidence in the power of Jesus and the power of his spirit? Because Jesus has transformed and renewed us, and we are sinners. And we have that confidence because he's even now continuing to transform us and renew us, and we are sinners. That's what gives us the confidence and the power of Jesus Christ to overwhelm even the most notorious sin. So, as we begin to see ourselves in Simon... We have an attitude that looks as people, at people as if they might contaminate us. But I think Jesus in this story invites us to see ourselves as the woman, as the sinful woman. And when we do this, we'll begin to see others as Jesus sees others. We'll begin to see others as Jesus would have us see others. They're but fellow debtors, and they're also in need of a forgiving God. It is by the grace of God we are forgiven sinners. And it's our duty, it's our job, it's our privilege to carry God's grace to unforgiven sinners so they can experience what we have experienced and so they can experience what the woman experienced and so that they can live their lives in peace. How about our church? Well, our church should be a place where people can go in peace peace. I like this quote from Fred Craddock. He said, this church should not be just any church, but it should be a church of forgiven sinners, welcoming sinners in need of forgiveness. A church of forgiven sinners, welcoming sinners in need of forgiveness. We have an elders meeting coming up in a few weeks. I'm going to make a proposal there. I hope everybody's okay with this. I'm going to propose that we change the name of our church. No longer will we be known as the Netherwood Park Church of Christ. We're going to be known as the Forgiven Sinners Church of Christ. So look for sign changes soon. But that accurately reflects who we are. We are a group of forgiven sinners. And we are forgiven sinners because of Jesus Christ. Let's also understand that when God forgives a sinner, they need a church that will release them from their reputation. See if this saying doesn't ring true. I grew up in a small town. It certainly rings true for me. The saying is, small towns have big memories. Small towns have long memories. Small towns have detailed memories. 
And I'm afraid the same is true of many of our churches. As a church, we can have really big memories. We can have really long memories. We can have really detailed memories, especially when it comes to the sins, the discretions that people have done in the past. But I want to call on us as a church to be better than that. As a church, let's be bigger than that. And really, that's my invitation today. My invitation is to the church, to all of us. Let's be that church. Let's be the church that recognizes that we are indeed all forgiven sinners and that we are all completely dependent on God's forgiveness. Let's be that church, the church that welcomes fellow sinners in need of God's forgiveness. Let's be that church, the church that releases forgiven sinners from their reputations and views them as Jesus views them, simply as sons and daughters of God. So church, in a minute when we stand and sing together, won't you commit with me to being that church? And also let me say, if you're here and you know, you know that you're a sinner who needs God's forgiveness, through Jesus Christ, won't you give us a chance to welcome you into this church that's full of forgiven sinners? Give us a chance to help you be released from your reputation. Give us a chance to help you have your debts forgiven. We'd love nothing more than for you to be known as a son or daughter of God. So won't you enter into the forgiving presence of Jesus Christ this morning? You can do that in a couple of ways. We're going to stand up and sing a song together. And as we're doing that, we're going to be committing to being the church that I talked about. But if you want to come into the forgiving presence of Jesus Christ, you can do a couple of things. While we're standing and singing, you can walk to the front and let us know that that's your desire. Or you can walk to the back and ask to be directed to room 104. It's a more private place. There will be two men in there, both elders of this church, both godly men, both forgiven sinners. And they would like to talk to you about the forgiving presence of Jesus Christ. Whatever your need is, once you come and, and stand while we stand and sing.